You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, to court, Musk goes. Twitter's lawyers say his termination of the deal was wrongful. We will talk to a former Twitter insider about where the legal saga goes from here. Plus, Peloton's uphill battle continues. The connected fitness company will now stop making bikes in-house. Shares jumping on the news. We're going to have all the details. And funding for crypto startups plummeted last quarter. We'll ask Lightspeed Venture Partners why they are planning to double down on the blockchain. And Sequoia's Jess Lee will join us to talk about their new plan to hunt for what they call outliers and put $1 million behind these new ideas. I want to bring in Jason Goldman now, one of the founding members of Twitter and former White House chief digital officer under President Obama for some insider-outsider perspective. Jason, your timing is impeccable. Um, Look, officially this is uh, headed to Delaware court. Does anybody win in this scenario no matter what happens? Definitely the lawyers win. Uh, You know, the lawyers are excited when they describe a case as being unprecedented and complicated. That's definitely code for there's going to be unprecedented legal fees. So they're they're set. Everyone else is a loser in this for sure. Elon has shown he can't be trusted to execute a signed deal. Uh, The board has shown that they have no confidence in the long-term future of the company and are now going to Delaware to consummate a transaction with a bad faith actor. And the employees are left in limbo wondering what the future of the company will hold. So, look, last week when this happened, Brett Taylor, the chairman of Twitter Boars, said that, you know, they're committed to closing the transaction. Uh, they plan to pursue legal action. Now we here we are uh, seeing them pursue this legal action. Then you had Ev Williams getting into the fray. And obviously, I know you and Ev worked very closely together in those early days, responding to Brett, saying, I'm sure there are legal and fiduciary reasons you have to say that. But if I was still on the board, I'd be asking if we can just let this whole ugly episode blow over. Hopefully, that's the plan. And this is ceremony. What do you think the plan actually is? And is this ceremony? No, I mean, at this point, the, the board has to sue and try to get the, pre, the agreement agreed to enforce. Like, they, they have no choice as fiduciaries to do anything but that. Um, I think what Ev is, I think what Ev is expressing was I, what, is what I agree as well, is that I wish the board had had more insight 
at the beginning of this to realize that they were dealing with someone who just wasn't serious uh, and didn't have a real plan for what to do with the company. Uh, and instead, led by Jack, they kind of became besotted with this idea uh, of, of Elon owning the company. Uh, and, you know, the first step of, of avoiding a trap is knowing that it's there. And the board just simply didn't realize that they were walking into one and striking a deal with Elon in the first place. So why do you think Elon actually did this in the first place. You know, there was one venture capitalist who pointed to the idea that he just wanted to sell some Tesla stock. What do you think the real motivation was? I, th I think he enjoys using Twitter and is addicted to the service and thought for a while it would be, f it it would be fun to own it. I also think if you look at the proxy f uh, filing statement uh, that Twitter filed on the deal, that they, were, they had a signed agreement to just get Elon on the board and have a standstill agreement where you would own more, no more than 15% of the company. Uh, and then he had a conversation with Jack on the same day that that agreement was announced and it quickly pivoted to, I should just own the company as a whole. I think that's one of the reasons why this deal is also likely to settle is that there's there's probably a lot of conversations uh, between Elon and the company in the pre-agreement uh, phase that they don't want to come out in discovery. And so this is something that ultimately I don't think will be decided by the courts, but will be decided in, in a settlement between lawyers. Okay, but I wonder how this plays out. You know, if Elon Musk still you know, ends up having to hold up his end of the deal and Twitter quote unquote wins, is that good for anyone? No, it's not good for anyone. The 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 price. The, it's not good for uh, Twitter uh, if Elon ends up owning the company because he doesn't have a real plan for what he wants to do with it. He's revealed that over time. It's also worth noting that there were any number of Silicon Valley luminaries that lined up behind Elon uh, owning the company uh, and pledged to be equity partners. Uh, and, you know whether that's Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia or DFJ or Free Speech Advocate, the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, all of those folks have gone remarkably silent in terms of of their belief in Elon as the ultimate uh, owner of this company, because in his conversations, he showed he wasn't serious about what he would do with it. So Elon owning it isn't good. A settlement is unlikely to equal any amount of value that equals the damage done. And the, the, real, the real problem is that there's actual employees who want to make a better product and want to make the company better for the future, but they just don't have the leadership um, that will enable them to do that. Let's be clear. I mean, there are so many users, including Elon Musk, who love Twitter, love using Twitter. But, you know, Twitter over so many years just hasn't been able to parlay yep. that into a significantly bigger business. What would your plan be to increase engagement, to drive more revenue, to increase the number of users? Well, let's be clear. I'm not here auditioning for any any job <laughs> at Twitter. I think what I think what the board needs to do at, at this at the end of this juncture is find new leadership. That's not a job I'm auditioning for. What they I think they need to do is look at at users that have found tremendous value from it and build engagement around it. I don't think that the company is one silver bullet away or one feature away um, from fixing the trajectory that it's on. Um, but it's 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 obviously something that's always had cultural value and cultural resonance. And it's something that I think uh, continues to play a role in global politics and the global conversation. You know, one, one point on that is we've spent months arguing what Elon has meant about free speech online. And he's uh, slowly evolved that viewpoint from just 
being mean anything to comply with legal uh, requirements of local regimes. In the meantime, while we've been debating, trying to tease out any meaning from what Elon's position on free speech is, Twitter is actually in court in India trying to push back on an authoritarian uh, uh, on authoritarian creep into free speech laws in that country. And so there's actual real stakes at play here. And the company is fighting good fights around the world. Uh, it's just that they're having to do so now under this uh, cloud of Elon's acquisition. Real stakes indeed. Jason Goldman, one of the founding members of Twitter, former White House chief digital officer. Jason, as always, thank you for your insights. Meantime, bargain hunters might be a little underwhelmed by Amazon's two-day Prime Day sale. The annual event began today, but many sellers are minimizing their discounts to cover their own soaring costs. Prime Day helps Amazon lock in shoppers before the holidays and deepen its relationships with existing customers with deals on Amazon gadgets like Echo. Now Peloton making a major strategic shift to cut costs and streamline its strategy. The company will stop building exercise bikes and treadmills at its own factories, a big bet of the former leadership team. Peloton making this change after several months of turmoil. Shares of the company are down 75% so far this year. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who of course covers Peloton, with us now for more. So talk to us about the significance of a pretty dramatic shift here, Mark. This is an end-to-end -end overhaul of their operation. So just to set the scene, let's look at Apple for a second. So Apple obviously designs the iPhone and their other products. But what most people don't know is that they have a third party called Foxconn that manufactures it. right? So Apple works hand-in-hand -hand with Foxconn to actually build those devices. They don't do it in-house. Peloton, however, did both. They built a big portion of their bikes in-house using their own facilities and also contracted out another portion of their devices to different uh, technology manufacturers in Asia, one called Rexon, one called Quanta, one called Pegatron. So what Peloton is now gonna do is they're seizing their in-house production operations and they're moving entirely to contract manufacturers. That's gonna simplify their entire business model because instead of having two distinct supply chains, they're now gonna have one supply chain. They're also unfortunately laying off about 570 workers at their in-house facilities and they also believe this is going to up product quality as there's been some issues there because all of the in-house quality control is going to be in one place and you're not going to be split between two different production development styles. So will this solve Peloton's problems? That's the question. Well, Peloton has many, many problems. This will solve one of them, I think, right? One of their problems was the ability to gauge supply and demand and tie that to production, right? So as we know, Peloton's downfall really happened after they overestimated that demand would continue to occur even as the pandemic slowed down. That left them with an overabundance of inventory and nearly cratered the company into the ground. We see what's happened to their stock price. If they had had only contract manufacturers, that probably would have been easier to resolve because now they're not owning all that inventory in-house. They're working with a third party and it will give them better supply and demand balance and allow them to better optimize their supply chain. But Peloton's problems go far beyond their supply chain. There's issues with pricing. 
There's issues with how much their subscription costs. There's issues of people not wanting to even just buy their equipment, mm -hmm. right? There is competition, obviously, Apple Fitness Plus. There's Nordic Track. There's so many other companies. There's Tonal. There's the question if they're even hitting the market with the correct products. Their product development is taking a long time. They've been developing this rowing machine now for almost three or four years. The Peloton Guide, their new TV-connected device, that has not gone off to a hot start. So to answer your question, this solves one of their problems, but there's many more to go. It's sort of like whack-a-mole. All right, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, thank you for sharing your insights there with us. Whack-a-mole indeed. Okay, shares of Canoe soaring at one point doubling in value in Tuesday's session. This after the struggling electric vehicle startup won an order for 4,500 vans from Walmart. Canoe recently moved its headquarters to Walmart's hometown of Bentonville, Arkansas. In May, the company warned that there was substantial doubt about its long-term future, but now at least some investors seem a little more optimistic. Coming up, there's been a major slowdown in crypto funding this year. We're going to chat about that with one venture capitalist doubling down with a new team focused solely on investing in the blockchain. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. A story we continue to watch, delivery company GoPuff is cutting 10% of its workforce and closing dozens of warehouses. This in effort to conserve cash as the economy slows down. The job cuts will affect about 1,500 people in corporate and warehouse jobs in the United States. GoPuff will shut 76 warehouses, or about 12% of its network. Meantime, Lightspeed Venture Partners just raised $7 million for an early and growth stage entrepreneurs. The firm also just announced Lightspeed Faction, a new team fully dedicated to blockchain investments. Venture capitalists have cooled on crypto recently, with PitchBook reporting a 31% quarterly decline in crypto investments through June. Bajul Samaya is a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners and joins us now from New Delhi. So, obviously, you just raised $7 billion new 
dollars in fresh venture capital. You know, talk to us about uh, the process of raising this funding, especially in a very, very difficult macro environment. Yeah, thanks, Emily. Well, you know, I think um, getting getting this done is really a reflection of the strength of the franchise and and really the quality of founders that we've been fortunate to work with and an LP base that's sophisticated and has seen through multiple cycles is very committed to the asset class. And so we're really fortunate to have raised this capital at a time that um, I think will hopefully prove to be a really good vintage for uh, for venture and for um, founders that are building for the next seven to 10 years. So where do you plan to deploy this and how fast given these tumultuous market conditions? Yeah, we typically target a three-year new investment period uh, for our funds, Emily. And, you know, one of the reasons for <clears throat> the scale of this capital base is over the last 20 years, really in 2000, Lightspeed believed that innovation and, and technology entrepreneurship would be a global phenomenon. And it was a little bit contrarian at that time. But as a result, the firm has built a presence today. We have um, 70 investors across 12 offices in six countries. And so, there is a lot of opportunity globally. Um, the scope of the sectors that we invest in has also increased now with, with pharma and biotech in addition to enterprise, consumer, uh, fintech, uh, crypto, um, and a growth practice. And so I think we're seeing a lot of opportunity in these areas. Undoubtedly, the, the market for growth is going to be is already slow, and we think we'll remain that way. Uh, but, um, but we'll be patient. About the global trends you're seeing, for example, how are you seeing uh, the you know slowdown impact startups in India? Is it similar to what we're seeing here in the United States, or uh, you know are these macro conditions playing out differently around the globe? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think what we see is the macro conditions actually play out differently across sectors and differently across countries. So, for example, even within the U.S. Consumer has seen some impact really early on. Uh, enterprise, not just yet. Obviously, sectors like pharma and biotech will have very different dynamics. Somewhat similar with countries. You know, in India, for example, I don't think we're going to see a recession. Uh, the country is growing at about 7.5%. Um, but what we are seeing, and, and, and we've been used to inflation again in the high single-digit um, figures, and, and the central bank is somewhat used to managing uh, that level of inflation. But what we are seeing is um, is an outflow of, of foreign investment as capital moves out of what are perceived as riskier countries and emerging markets. And that has an impact on the financing environment for startups, um, more so right now than the macros. Lightspeed's invested in 30-some companies that are now public companies. How long do you think this downturn lasts? When does the, the IPO window reopen? We have 30 seconds. I wish we had a crystal ball. Feels like it's going to be longer than the previous downturns, uh, given the multitude of, of factors at play, Emily. So, you know, we're thinking certainly well into 2023. Interesting. All right, uh, Bajul Samaya, thank you for joining us. I know it's a very early morning you. for you there in New Delhi. Appreciate you waking up. Lightspeed Venture Partners, we'll keep watching.
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. I want to get back to the latest on Twitter and Elon Musk. In the last hour, Twitter has sued Musk in a move to force the world's richest man to consummate his proposed $44 billion buyout of the social media platform. Our Ed Ludlow back here with the headline. So we've read some of the fine print now. What is Twitter arguing in this file? Yeah, they're basically saying Musk does not have a right to walk away to an agreement that had very few conditions. They're saying he agreed to $54.20 a share, $44 billion takeover, and that he can't walk away. We have this quote from the court filing we can bring up on screen. Musk apparently believes that he, unlike every other party subject to Delaware contract law, is free to change his mind, trash the company, disrupt its operations, destroy stockholder value, and walk away. And Twitter's basically pointing out... Fighting words. Fighting words. And just because the stocks generally have fallen down in the sector, including social media stocks. He can't just have buyer's remorse, is their basic argument. So does Twitter have a case? Or whose you know, case is better, this, right? Right. Yeah. So most lawyers that we've spoken to at Bloomberg think that Twitter do. It comes down to material adverse effect. Musk's argument is that there wasn't enough information handed over on bots. And this is where the court case is going to be fought. Did they or did they not share enough data? Material adverse effect meaning, did them withholding data on bots or not sharing enough or what they did share actually alter the value of the deal? And if it did, then Musk could win. But I think most lawyers would see Twitter has a good chance here. All right. Ed, thank you. Thank you. Meantime, Sequoia Capital may have a million dollars for your idea. The storied venture capital firm is now accepting applications for its deed stage catalyst called ARC. They say they're looking to fund outlier founders and teach them how to make their ideas a reality. Jess Lee is a partner at Sequoia Capital and joins us now to tell us more. Jess, great to have you with us. So walk us through the vision for ARC and how you think this sets apart what Sequoia is trying to do here. Thanks for having me, Emily. Um, ARC is Sequoia's new seed stage catalyst for outlier founders. We offer three things, a million dollar investment from Sequoia, as well as seven weeks of programming on foundational company building topics. And you're working alongside a cohort, uh, a community of really exceptional people who are, on, are at the same stage as you. Um, the reason we're doing this is we know it takes a lot more than just money to create a category defining company. And we know founders want company building help. And Sequoia has had the privilege of working for over 50 years with some of the best founders. What we've tried to do is take all those lessons, all those mistakes, uh, the journey of all the other founders that we've worked with and boil them down into foundational company building concepts. Everything from product to customer obsession to culture to how to hire. And so that's the seven weeks of, of jam-packed programming for ARC. When you say outlier founders, and, right, applications are open now until July 22nd? Mm -hmm, that's right. All right, so you've got a few more days. So when you say outlier founders, what exactly do you mean? Sequoia's done a lot of really innovative things in the past, for example, your scout program to try to find, you know, unearth new entrepreneurs and new ideas. You know, why do you think you need to do this as well to find those outliers? You know, the, the, the venture market has been continuously evolving over the years, and I think there are a lot more founders coming into this space as investors and a lot more product thinking and innovation. What can a firm offer beyond money, which is actually a commodity and a board member? And so we often think about what do founders need? There are customers. How do we work backwards from that and figure out what they need help with? And the number one request we get and the number one thing I think Sequoia delivers is help with actual company building. And so we really tried to boil down everything that we've learned over the years through working with some of the best into the core things that you kind of for example, when I was a founder, there are things I wish I could have gone back in time and told my younger self about how to run a company. That is a lot of what ARC teaches. 
Now, every company gets a million dollars. What is Sequoia's stake, and what is the chance for follow-on funding? Uh, so the it, it varies from company to company. We work some are pre-seed to people with an idea, uh, and then some are actually a little bit further along, and we put one million dollars into their existing seed round that maybe they've already raised. So it's it's a little bit of a range, um, but the the focus is really on the how to build an enduring company, a company that lasts for decades, not just you know how to get to the next quarter or the next fundraising milestone. Um, so there's a little bit of of a range. So given this very tumultuous macro environment that we now find ourselves in, how is that changing what you're looking for, what you're looking to fund at the stage stage or the early stage or the growth stage? I mean, Sequoia really runs the gamut. Yeah, I, I would say that we've seen um, multiple compression and valuations come down. Uh, I don't think we've seen earnings compression yet, and really, I, I think consumers are feeling poorer, and that's going to trickle down into the way people spend and the behavior of um, buyers, uh, both on the consumer side and the enterprise side. That said, Sequoia has been designed to outlast the cycles in the tech industry. The purpose is of, of our firm is to look beyond those short-term fluctuations. And so we're looking for the same thing we were looking for before, which is founders that have uh, a unique insight, uh, who have a lot of grit to endure these ups and downs, as well as just the difficult journey of, of starting a company. Uh, and we're looking for large markets where you think you can build, almost like define a category from scratch, create a new one. What is Sequoia's read on the macro environment right now and how bad this will be for tech? I don't have a crystal ball. That said, I do think that, like I said, we just started to see multiple compression and not yet earnings compression. I, I really think people are. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, we basically the the public market has returned to historical valuations, the revenue multiples, mm -hmm. but earnings have not. I, I don't think we've seen the full impact of consumers feeling. Wow, gas is really expensive. My company had layoffs. I can't buy as much enterprise software. So I think that may still be coming. That's what we've been forecasting for our founders. Uh, we called in all hands recently where we, we gathered all of our founders and we walked them through what we were seeing in the market as well as how to think about forecasting, uh, financial planning, and how to lead in uncertain times. So that's, that's what we expect. As for how founders should react, that really depends. It's on a case-by-case -case basis. Some founders are in a great cash position and should be leaning in very aggressively. Uh, what we see in these down cycles tends to be that hiring freezes, everyone sort of pauses and, and reflects, and it actually becomes easier to get a higher concentration of talent versus before you were competing with the FANG companies, with every single startup, seed stage, everyone was hiring. And, and now I think for the, the, the mission driven, for the people who are venturing out of jobs now, uh, it's actually possible to, to get a greater uh, concentration of talent. And then some folks are in a not so great cash position and may need to take more drastic action, but it's really case okay. by case. And so we walk our founders through all of that. Sequoia is famous for its RIP good times message, which you gave to entrepreneurs in 2008, the height of the financial crisis. What's the headline of the presentation today, or what would it be today? It was called Adapting to Endure. It was about how to build those long-term enduring companies, how to outlive the cycle. The founder of Sequoia, Don Valentine, he, he had a license plate uh, that said Verrucht on it, which is the German word for crazy uh, or insane. 
And he, you know, some of the wisdom that gets passed down from him as, as well as to, to every gener- to, throughout the, the partnership has been that tech moves in these cycles. Um, there are four phases. The first, uh, well, the one we were just in was called Verukt. It is the the hype, the excess, the, the, the high multiples like parties, you know, when Lambo. And then uh, there's a correction of quite sharp correction where people tend tend to freeze and then uh you know course correction and then it slowly comes back and then it, it happens all over again that's sort of what okay. we've been seeing play out over over decades it is compressed in certain industries like crypto i would say the 12 year bull market becomes a, a four year bull market uh but the best companies are often formed in that correction phase it's the founders right. who really are mission driven they want to start their company no matter what they're 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 courageous they're brave they have the grit to alas they can get that concentration of great talent uh, and they they have fewer competitors so we believe at sequoia that now is a great time to start a company and that's why we launched mark now last year sequoia made a big break with tradition to do away with traditional venture capital timelines and in some cases keep money invested longer in companies your portfolio companies going public some of these companies have had a tough time in the public markets airbnb doordash Robinhood. is that strategy evolving at all given these tumultuous chimes and are lps reacting at all or asking for their money back or out sooner so the purpose of the Sequoia Capital Fund was actually to look beyond those short-term uh, fluctuations. It allows us to be the long-term partner, the the shareholder, the long-term partner. The the you know we don't have to immediately distribute after the IPO to lock in some return for our LPs. It also actually lets us generate superior returns for our LPs. We get to capture the compounding value. Some of the best companies, Google, Cisco. Uh, Airbnb, the companies we've had the privilege of, of working with for, for a long time, we have a lot of information about how well they're doing and the real, like, what those founders are truly like. And so we think we're in a better position to manage some of the distributions for our LPs. And the founders really love that that we are that long-term partner. So the strategy okay. has not changed. Okay. Um, now, I have to ask you, you're on the board of Allraise. You mentioned you're a founder yourself. There's been a lot of concerns about women backsliding in the pandemic. And I wonder if those concerns continue, uh, if there's concern about women backsliding in a downturn. Yeah, this is a deeply personal issue for me. I was a female founder. I um, was working on a product targeted at women, and it was very hard to fundraise. I never pitched a single woman investor, and I made the connection. I realized that the complexion of who makes funding decisions affects what problems and what customers get served in the world by the tech industry. That's part of what motivated me to move to venture and to co-found Allraise alongside 30 other amazing uh, women in venture and, and female founders. Certainly the percentage of uh, women check writers at VC firms has gone up. I think it's moved from 9% to 14% in the last four years. There are some steps forward. However, there are also some steps back overall for women in this country. I think you know the overturning of Roe v. Wade is uh, a tragic step backwards. I think a lot is going to fall on the tech industry, on innovative founders, on employers to help move the ball forward for women. All right. Uh, Well, appreciate you sharing your thoughts on all of that with us. Obviously, you have a very long history in this industry. Um, Sequoia Capital's Jess Lee. Jess, great to have you with us. All right. Coming up, Bitcoin miners feeling the heat with the Texas power grid near the brink. We're going to talk about the impact of the heat wave in the Lone Star State that has become a hub for digital assets. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? 
What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. For our crypto report, joining me now, Bloomberg Shanali Basik, in the middle of crypto winter. Shanali, of course, we've been talking about startup funding for crypto falling off. You know, talk to us about the 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 where the tide is going here. Yeah, think about the massive disconnect you're seeing here, Emily. It's you you have billions of dollars, ten billion of dollars in the first quarter alone raised for venture capital in the crypto space, but the funding of the startups themselves has really fallen off, and you really started to see that in the second quarter of this year where funding dropped by 31%, according to PitchBook data. There were some venture capitalists that spoke to Bloomberg that gave more specifics on what that looks like. At the seed stage, it's not as dramatic of a drop. But as you start to get into Series A and later rounds, you could see a 50 or 70% drop in valuations, which is what is making venture capitalists so nervous here. You don't want to catch a falling knife. So until you see a little bit more stabilization in the industry in terms of where prices will go, as well as a share out here in terms of the types of projects that will make it through this cycle, it's going to be hard to see tons of money being put to work, though we are seeing some uh, high-profile names still being funded. I know you and I, for example, spoke to Magic Eden, an NFT marketplace just weeks ago. But again, these are one-off situations and not the norm in this environment. How easy is it going to be to spend this money that, that these venture capital funds have raised? Andrew Zanarowitz, Katie Hahn, we were just talking to Jess Lee from Sequoia. Are they going to be able to put all the money they raised to fund crypto to work? Yeah, it's a great question because you have to see if the definition, definition of crypto will change by any means. Uh, are you going to start to put money towards projects that are Solana-based, or are you going to put money towards projects that are more Web3-based? You see gaming and crypto become a very popular, uh, popular environment here, so you can maybe see things start to change in terms of definitions of crypto. But again, uh, we're looking at the price of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, of course, still king here, Emily. When do prices stabilize? Until that happens, it's hard to see massive amounts put to work. All right, uh, Shanali Basik, thank you for that update.
Over 500 of the top CEOs in the United States have joined an effort by Code.org urging governors and state education officials to ensure that all U.S. elementary and high school students have the chance to study computer science. This comes as demand for talent to fill jobs in cybersecurity, data science, computer programming has skyrocketed. Many of those jobs are unfilled. Joining us for this week's Techonomics segment, Hadi Partovi, founder of Code.org, also a longtime investor, uh, tech entrepreneur yourself. You've been doing this now for nine years. Nine years, yeah. It's Trying been a to long get time. computer science taught in schools. How much progress has there actually been? When we started, 10% of U.S. schools taught computer science. Now it's at 51%. So we've now tipped it. So if, if you're a parent whose school doesn't, your child's school doesn't teach computer science, you're now in the minority. But we still want to get to the point where 100% of schools teach computer science. And we're also at the point where even with all these schools teaching it, only 5% of high school students study computer science. And we want to reach every kid. Uh, so that's the, the next decade of work is to get to every single student in every school. So you've got Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Jeff Bezos, Sundar Pichai, and you know hundreds more who have signed this letter. What will this letter actually accomplish? Well, the first thing I wanted to say is it's it's not surprising to see folks like Tim Cook or Bill yeah. Gates or Mark Zuckerberg saying that schools should teach computer science. What's truly unique is the companies outside of the tech sector, the leading companies in retail, transportation, finance, even in coffee or toys or you know, mm -hmm. Starbucks, Nike, Hasbro, these companies, Nordstrom's, UPS, Walgreens are all getting behind computer science to show that computer science is no longer about just jobs at tech companies because every company is becoming a tech company. Every company has data science needs right. or cybersecurity needs. So ha have you gotten a response from lawmakers, from the people who have the you know, capability of changing this, of adding this to a school curriculum? We've, we have early signs. The National Governors Association, all 50 governors are actually getting together tomorrow, and we expect by Thursday that they're going to make an announcement on this topic. Uh, we don't know exactly what it's going to say, but the early signs are it's going to be tremendous. I'm hoping to see all 50 governors united behind something about computer science, because this is an issue, really, that everybody can get behind. You've shared your story with us here over the years, but I want to remind our viewers, you know, you grew up in Iran. Your school didn't offer computer science, but you were still able to get get access to a computer and it changed your life. If your school had offered computer science, do you think your life would have been different? Well, for me, I had a father who was a physicist and a mother who was a computer scientist. So even growing up in post-revolutionary Iran during a war, I was learning to code on my own. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the most underprivileged kids in today's world, the kids who are getting left behind, what's the one thing we can teach them in school that gives them a pathway ahead? Or that even just gives them the confidence that I can build something, I can make something, I can, I can change the world, I can be a creator. Kids want to create, mm -hmm. and right now they're becoming creators on TikTok or Instagram. Instagram because that's easy. If they knew that they could create apps and create software, there's a whole world of opportunity that we would open up for them as well. There's also the how. You know, what are schools getting right when they are trying to deliver this curriculum and what are they getting wrong? I mean, I've got multiple children in school and, you know, there, there, there's, there's this thirst for more computer science and I, I even wonder if they're doing it the right way. Yeah, one of the challenges is to make sure computer science is taught creatively. So it's not just about like learn, learning these things and memorizing and passing the test, but more like what do you want to create? What app do you want to create? What game? What website? To, to basically draw out the natural creativity. And when it's taught that way, it also brings in diversity into the field because more students are interested in, in creating stuff than they are in just sort of doing rote work. So how long do you think before we get to 100%? 
I'm pretty confident that by the end of the decade we will because there's now multiple states saying that it's going to be required for graduation. There's now five states that require computer science for graduation from high school. And when you do that, you get to 100%. You also fix the gender gap. You fix the racial equity gap. Every student learns so computer science. So this is the, the secret to everything. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, in South Carolina, for example, it's the first state that required computer science for graduation. There's now more young women in South Carolina learning computer science than the five states surrounding it. Um, well, it's been wonderful to see your progress over these nine years, um, and we'll be watching for more. Code.org founder Hadi Partovi, thank you for joining us here in the studio. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We've got a big interview coming up tomorrow. The CEO of IBM, Arvind Krishna, will be with us. We're going to talk to him about everything from the downturn to the supply chain and more. You don't want to miss it. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.